Welcome to First Check, a podcast so you can learn how to be the next great venture capitalist or angel investor. You've seen the Ubers, Googles, and Pindos of the world, the 10x to 100x returns, and you want to know how you can get in on the action. As a partner at Co-Founders Capital, host of First Check, Tim McLaughlin, has invested over $43 million in startups. And on this podcast, he's going to share with you what works and what doesn't, so you can be ready to write your first check. Today's guest is Toby Walter, former entrepreneur turned venture capitalist at Co-Founders Capital. Toby has had an incredible journey to get to Co-Founders, including the biggest tech exit in Europe ever, trying to raise money during the financial crisis of 2009, and eventually taking his startup knowledge to venture capital. On the show, he gives inside information on what it's like to be both on the founder side and the VC side. Here's the host of First Check, Tim McLaughlin. My guest today is the newest member of the Co-Founders Capital team, my friend and colleague, Toby Walter. Toby, how you doing? Doing well. Thank you for having me, Tim. Uh, well, it's, it's great to have you. I know we talk mostly every day, but I think this is going to have a slightly different spin on it from, than our normal conversations, if that's all right. I was going to say, it's probably been about a year that you've truly interviewed me the last time. So I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> That's right. So, so I did interview with Toby joined our team in January. And the great story I like to tell is uh, Toby was the first person I talked to about the potential opening at Co-Founders Capital after posting that position on LinkedIn, getting 27,000 views of the job position that I posted on LinkedIn after hundreds of resumes and 70 plus interviews. We wound up hiring Toby, which is the first person I talked to about the job. So there you go. So you got in early, Toby. That was that was great. But uh, I'm glad this is audio only, so you don't see me blushing on video right now. <laughs> so all good. Well, Toby, before you were a venture capitalist, which I know probably still feels a little weird to you. And one of the things we like to tout at Co-Founders Capital is we were all entrepreneurs first. So why don't you uh, tell the audience a little bit about your entrepreneurial journey? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been part of two startups before I joined Co-Founders Capital earlier this year. To start from the beginning, I went the business school route. I got my MBA in Germany, where I'm from originally. Started out in investment banking, worked with uh, Morgan Stanley and M&A for about a year, and got bitten by the entrepreneurship bug kind of after that year, and during which I figured there's got to be something more out there in the world to do than filling out the same Excel sheet and the same cubicle over and over. So uh, back then I joined a startup in Berlin, Germany, three guys that were just about to start basically what Facebook is here in the US over in Germany. This was back in 07. So it was at a time where Facebook had just expanded beyond about a, a dozen campuses here, was, but was still pretty early stage as well. We got crazy lucky in hitting the market timing right in that we were the first social network in continental Europe Joined those three guys as the second employee after the three founders, um, was with the company for two years and really found my love for entrepreneurship and, and kind of the fast paced web and mobile world too. We had a, a very quick success. So as I said, being extremely lucky in the market timing, we launched the website in March of 07. By the end of 07, we had grown to be the third largest website in Germany in terms of page impressions after Yahoo and Google. So we got about 90% of German-speaking students on our website in just six months. 
Um, about half of them locked in on a daily ratio. So we, we became one of the, the largest or most uh, traffic websites in Germany and sold very quickly too. We sold just about eight months after launch to a large German media conglomerate for about 125 million euro. And I stuck around for another year after the acquisition. And then we connected with a Dookie who had spent a year in Berlin and worked on that company with us. He and I reconnected and he said, hey, do you remember this idea I told you about last summer for Shoeboxed? I think I'm going to go ahead and start it now. Why don't you come over here and we'll do it together? That was my start to move over to the US from Germany about 12 years ago now. And Shoeboxed was a small business SaaS solution to help small business owners with bookkeeping and accounting. We would digitize receipts, bills, and invoices and get all that paper clutter from analog records to digital records. We would extract the data, categorize it, move it into the tools that you needed in to help small business owners in these accounting and, and bookkeeping workflows. Got it. So during your entrepreneurial journey here, you've come across a bunch of different types of investors. You raised capital for Shoebox. Why don't you give everyone a feel for the type of money you raised? With Shoebox, we were a little bit lucky in finding our seed investors. Those were two of those co-founders of the German Facebook. I would say that's not an unlikely story, an uncommon story, right? So oftentimes, and, and still when I speak to people early in their career, I do think there is a lot of benefit to having seen a startup from the inside, be it an internship that you might do during college or, or business school, med school, law school, or if you just work in an early stage or growth stage startup for a year or two, one thing you typically get out of it is a lot of connections, right? And it's not uncommon that when your company sells, the founders of that company have typically just made a good bit of cash um, and might start getting into angel investments afterwards. We had a very easy start into Shoebox in that we went to our two former bosses and said, hey, Taylor and me are going to go at this now. We're going to do our own thing. And the response was almost like, you don't really need to tell us what you guys are doing. We like you. So here's 150K. And, and um, I, think, I think that's a lot of what angel investors are looking for. And the reason why it's friends, family, and some folks that they've worked with in business in the past is at that point, you're really just investing in the people more so than a technology, built technology or proven market or anything like that. Absolutely. So we started with the investment from those two. The other good news was when the, the, those news became public and that German Facebook company was the biggest Web 2.0 exit in, in Europe uh, back at the time. So there was a lot of PR around it and coverage. So when those two guys made, made this angel investment, we got a lot of interest from other angel investors that figured they made the right pick and they wanted to add to the round. So we ended up raising about 300, 400K in angel money, basically as we were building the product. With that, we came here to Durham and, and set up our operations here. We did not quite expect that we started a company right before the financial crisis. So our plan was, in fact, in 2009 to raise uh, venture capital. Um, our plan was to go for about a $2 million round then. And that was a crazy year trying to raise. One story I remember like it was yesterday was in early 09, I got connected to this one Bay Area VC. We got on a, on a call and I said, hey, I'll be down there in, in two or three weeks. You know, why don't we meet in your office? He said, you know what? I've actually decided I'm just going to spend this year on a golf course. He said, I could pretend and keep listening to companies and pretend that I'm writing checks. But really, I know if I would make a capital call to my investors, they're going to default on it. And I can't do that. So... I'm just calling it what it is. I'm not going to make an investment this year. I'll be on the golf course. Come back next year if you want to. 
Wow. <laughs> I think that was the moment where I thought, okay, this might be this might be an interesting year for for raising uh, raising VC. Is that also the moment you realized you wanted to become a VC when they said they were just going to take the <laughs> year off? Take a year off and be on the golf course. Yeah, I'm not sure I like that person that much. You know, those were <laughs> those were in the days when a hundred hours was an easy week, um, and if you if you slept less than twice a week in the office, you had a pretty good week. So I'm not sure I, I liked that idea of you know the guy who could just take off a year. I think I was a little bit more with the entrepreneurial VCs at the time. But yeah, so long story short, we did still try to raise that round in 2009. We went out for about six, seven, eight months, pitched about 100 investors, mostly VCs, some angel groups, ended up with two term sheets. And I think, you know, back in 2009, which was a different crisis than what we're having now, which was truly uh, a crisis in raising capital, right? Uh, a lot of the capital markets were shot. A lot of people could not be financed themselves or get the capital together to make new investments. So the few folks that still invested knew that they had their say on terms. And ultimately, we came out of this after that eight months on, on a fundraising trail and had the discussion with our angel investors back then and said, look, guys, here's what we can do. We can go with one of those two term sheets, you know, dilute everybody 40, 50 percent, basically give up control of the company and sit there a little bit with our fingers crossed that these investors will make the right calls. Or we said what we were seeing back then was that we had interesting unit economics. So we were selling a product at just about 50 bucks a month customers, but we had really high retention rates with a really good margin and we were still pretty cheap and capital efficient at the time. So we went to our angels and said, the other route we think we can go is if we can get 300, 400K around the table together, we think we can become cash flow positive on a, what people like to call now the ramen noodle profitability, right? So not with actually paying market salaries, but our goal was about 600, 700K a year revenue. We thought we could become profitable. And that's exactly what we did. So the investors around the room said, yep, that's the right way to go. Um, we're going to throw an additional capital. We added a, a few angel investors around here and said, that's what we're going to do. We're going to hunker down. We're going to be very focused on our goal was 2000 paying customers. So it was about how can we get them the most capital efficient and, you know, said, let's wait two or three years until markets close, uh, open back up and then ultimately go out for our institutional round. Um, and that's exactly what we did. So we ended up raising uh, institutional money in 2011 then, right exactly at that point, we got to about 800, 900K in revenue, were ramen noodle profitable, and in 2011 raised around from Novak Biddle Venture Partners uh, up in DC. Got it. That was ultimately the last round we needed. So to fast forward on the shoebox fundraising story, after that round, we closed the venture debt round with uh, what used to be Square One Bank, now, now PacWest. They gave us about a million dollars in venture debt, which was what, what got us through the finish line. In 2018, we ended up selling the company to an Austin, Texas-based private equity fund. So you raised capital from angels multiple times. You raised money from VCs. What were the differences in the fundraising process and what were maybe the pros and cons of each? The one thing I think I would differentiate on first is I think there's very different angels, right? So VCs overall, I think, seem pretty similar to me in what they do in an investment, what they do post an investment. Those I see as more of a homogeneous class, while angels, I think, can still take a lot of different ways, shapes, and forms. While I might generally say that angels are quicker, that only pertains to some. I think there are some that, that equally take a long amount of time. But overall, I would say 
angels are typically quicker in raising, might believe more in the team than in specific business metrics. So don't have folks ultimately to answer and don't need specific boxes to be checked. So you can maybe talk an angel into something more than you might be able to talk an institutional investor into something and typically a little quicker to decide. I think on both sides, post-investment, I think it really differs. I think there is very active angel investors that are truly smart money. There is folks in there that, you know, might in fact bother you and might call you every two weeks and want to understand what's going on and all you want, right, is time to execute. There are some that do a really good job in mentoring at the right time. And there are some that are really passive. I think the same is true for VCs, right? And I think you just need to know who you're talking to, um, what they typically do and what you're looking for. But I think both of that, all of that exists too in VCs. I think there are some that can be overbearing. I think there's some that do a, a great balance between trying to be helpful, but, but not overloading a team. And then I think there are some that are very passive and, you know, just check in every now and then. So before you were able to get a check during the diligence process, what were some things angels or VCs did that drove you nuts? Was there anything specific you can remember that was, was uh, not a fun experience as an entrepreneur? I remember one thing, which I think was maybe somewhat fair, but it was always a little bit of a nuisance. So, um, our product offering at Shoeboxed was we helped digitize receipts, bills, invoices. We actually for a while also tried a business card product. So the idea of, you know, you can take a picture of a business card with your phone, or you could simply mail a stack of business cards to us. We would scan them and extract and human verify the data. So now one thing that that made almost every VC think is a good due diligence is to give one of their assistants a subscription to Shoeboxed and say, look into this and see if this makes sense. A lot of times that person wasn't actually motivated to try something out. They didn't really know what that app was or what this weird big blue envelope was. So I would say the hardest part maybe for me was to go back to some of the VCs that have gotten feedback from their assistant or just had gotten a, oh, I haven't used it yet. And then came back to us and were like, why are our assistants not using it? I'm like, well, maybe because, you know, you guys don't have business cards, so they don't do that, or they don't understand that. I would say that was the thing that was a little bit hard and how they were trying to test the market. And I think what we saw as our actual market. That is interesting. Maybe they weren't your target customer. Your response should have been just, just been, I'm very focused on my target customer and you're not, not it. I'm a very focused entrepreneur. That probably would have gone a long way. I do think that was, that's exactly the lesson I should have known before I learned during that process. Right on. All right. So. If, if you got out of shoebox, you raised money, you had a successful exit, and then you're thinking a reason why you would tell yourself, I'm never going to be a venture capitalist. What are some reasons why you would think I'm never going to be a venture capitalist? So I might start with even doing business, doing business school, right? And you noticed him, there is kind of the general path and people will talk about, oh, you got to do consulting or you got to do investment banking, et cetera. Whenever I looked at, especially the consulting business, I always had a little bit of an issue with what is my impact in the world or what am I doing? Am I just right, painting pretty slides um, and maybe recommending something, but not in fact doing something? That might've been a, a valid concern about a VC, right? Is that are those just folks that right, don't really have an impact that can't actually do something? I think that that would be one. I think there's another one in kind of the the overbearing nature and, you know, maybe how great of an operator or entrepreneur VCs or 
some VCs tend to see themselves, kind of that arrogance that might have been a little off-putting too. I might say those are my two biggest, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. And then, of course, you got to work with us, and there's no arrogance at all, right? Everything's fine. Exactly. <laughs> so, so anyway, what what do you think after you joined the team? So you joined the co-founders team in January. Um, you did a lot of diligence before coming on and joining co-founders. What were some of the biggest surprises that you had being on the other side of the table? I would say the biggest one, and even just in the first month or two, was how many deals you are truly seeing, which kind of had two effects. One was, I think even in my second month, I started seeing the same concept for the second or third time. And that was always hard to believe for me when I heard that from VCs before. It was the, oh, we've seen this plan 10 times, you know, everybody's doing this. And now I was looking back, I was like, really? You've seen that 10 times? And sure enough, second month, right? Second or third time, it was a, you know, some, some business plan that kind of came back around and, and a lot of people were working on. That is one part. The other part, I think, in the amount of deal flow was... It was humbling to me to see how picky VCs really can be and how little maybe they have to chase a deal. So coming from the entrepreneur side, right, I think you look at a, an entrepreneur investor pitch as, as very much a peer-to-peer -peer relation. And you obviously believe heavily in your company and you probably portray that that other person should too and that you are probably the best investment opportunity that you're pitching to that firm this year or even this decade, right? Or things like that. And I think after a few months now in having been in VC is on the one hand, you're truly seeing so many deals and I think there's only a specific comfort level that you can get to on saying, yes, this company will really work, right? I mean, you know, this Tim, we, we make our bets. We, we think a lot about where we're going to place our bets and truly what we make an investment. So we have very high hopes for it, but, you know, they still, we couldn't say with a 90% plus likelihood that this is going to be the company that will make or break our fund. So that was interesting to me, kind of seeing that from the other side, right? While an entrepreneur might think that you truly are the perfect fit and the perfect deal for that investor. On the investor side, I think you look at this more a, yes, this is one that could fit, but also, frankly, there's 10 other companies that might fit our bill just as much. And so I can only go that far out of my way to potentially close a deal when they're, you know, when I could be looking at 10 other companies just as much. And I, I think that one thing I, I try to be transparent with entrepreneurs about is you're not just competing with, it's not just a binary decision. You're not competing with it. Is this an investable deal or is it not? It's, is this an investable deal? Is it the best deal at the time for the focus of the fund? Can the fund focus on doing the diligence they need to do and spending time with this company right now when I need the capital? Where's the fund in its life cycle? Is it ready to make a check the size that we need? Does it fit the portfolio that they've already built uh, and to maximize return expectations for the investors? And when you look at all that stuff that's out of the control of the entrepreneur and the entrepreneur, a lot of times just thinking about, is this an investable deal? Can I present this as an investable deal? And probably a frustrating outcome to the entrepreneur is if the answer to that is yes, but they still don't receive an investment. The other thing I, I think is, you know, that could be the same with angel investors too. timing. It could all be about timing. 
for angel investors too. cash flow situations, whether or not there was just a recent big exit. So keep that in mind too, I think for the entrepreneurs that are involved in this. One thing I might say to entrepreneurs that are looking to raise angel capital too, I often recommend that pretty early on, you ask the question of when was the last investment that you made, right? Or how many investments have you made over the last year or two? That's pretty easy to follow along for institutional investors that, you know, might be listed in all sorts of databases, have portfolios on their website, et cetera. Might be a little harder to figure out in angel networks and angels. But yes, I think there's, and it makes sense that there is that same kind of up and down, right? On when, when the right and interesting times are for them to invest. But I think it's something for, especially the entrepreneur part too, to potentially check in early on of, of is this a reasonable time and can I expect that person to actually make a call or, or is it unlikely? So looking back on your pitches, your fundraising, you as an entrepreneur, is there anything now that you've been on the VC side that you just, you just slap yourself in the forehead and say, I can't believe I did that, or I wish I had done that a lot differently? You know what I've been wanting to look back, and actually this is a really good reminder, so I'm going to do it today. I've been wanting to look back at my market sizing slides at Shubalast because I remember how tough that was and how weird it seemed for us to try and put together what is our market size, right? And I'm sure a lot of entrepreneurs think about that the same way. And a lot of the tech and the new innovations, there's just simply not a market research report you can look at, right? If you start Googling around of, what is the market size for reseed organization? You probably won't find a lot. You're coming up with all these different ways, right, of trying to figure out, well, how big is the accounting industry? How much of that might be document prep or numbers prep, et cetera. But honestly, that, that was one thing I've been, now that I've done, you know, probably 20, 30, maybe even 40 different market sizing analysis in this one year that I've really wanted to look back at and, and probably laugh about myself in, in looking back at saying, oh my God, yeah, this is one of the slides that you now have to have to smile about me. Like, yeah, that's really unrealistic or that's not how you figure it out. So that might be, <laughs> that might be one of the very technical ones, but I, I think maybe one of my most interesting learnings. And I think that's another one, you know, especially or specifically more for the VC investment side. I got in touch with, with one mentor to a lot of early stage companies who helps them kind of put the pitch decks together. One of his big things that he says is VCs invest in markets, not in companies. That might have been the other one that, that made me always want to look back at my pitch deck, which I think is very common from an entrepreneur that you think about this very company specific, right? And you always talk about your specific traction, um, how you foresee this or that, rather than maybe talking more about what the VC specifically is interested in is what does this market look like? How big is this market overall? You know, what are the barriers to entry? Who's playing in this now? Who will play in this in five years and things like that? No, that would be interesting. Well, if you come across that information, share it with me. I'd like to, uh, you know, maybe use it as an example of what to do or maybe not to do for entrepreneurs. So we'll see. Well, um, it could be a check from a VC in the end. So I, I hope yeah. it's completely terrible. <laughs> That's true. That's true. So Toby, you and I, you know, part of our audience is folks that are studying maybe finance, maybe want to get into the investment world, maybe become a VC. We work with some great interns across some of the local universities, you know, UNC, uh, Keenan Flagler, we work with Duke and Fuqua, uh, we work with NC State, a lot of the students from those, and they've been phenomenal. But what surprises you of some of the stuff that maybe they don't know, that they didn't learn in school, that you, you thought they would just know about being a VC or studying entrepreneurship? So my first point would actually be, I think, just the expectation of what the work is like. And I would say one thing that's important for, for folks to figure out is 
where in the chain um, or in the stage of investing do you actually play? So one thing I often run into, and, and even in interviewing potential MBA interns, is the expectation of VC work is heavy financial modeling work. And that may be true in growth stage VC and, and up from there, right, in private equity and buyout, et cetera. When you look at seed stage or even series A investors, it becomes a lot more qualitative, right? There's really little financial modeling or, you know, we still get the question of is the valuation made by a discounted cash flow analysis <laughs> or things like that, but it's really a lot more qualitative, right? It's a lot more just understanding little bits and, and moving pieces in the business, understanding a bit of marketing, understanding a bit of sales, understanding a bit of product, understanding a customer relationship and needs and markets much more than I would say the financial analysis. So that would be my, my first comment. I think that's that's one thing that people still mis-expect, um, maybe based on just kind of the stage of, of where you're playing in, in the investment life cycle. Besides that, on kind of tactical skills that are maybe not taught in schools as much is, I think, market sizing, to come back to that point, is something that is really, really common. I think actually pretty straightforward, but it's still not very common to be taught maybe well in schools or often in schools, but, but maybe sporadically. Customer and market validation might be another one that that is maybe not that big in business school where it's more higher level analysis and not kind of bottom up approaches, unit economics, or, and just really understanding a customer, understanding their problem, you know, everything that might have a, a bit of a sales mentality attached to it that might be things that you need to catch on besides business school. And it's one of the things you and I do is going on uh, sales calls, talking to customers, understanding what the problem is, understanding what the solution does for them, what the value props are and what the ROI is, which effectively drive all of the assumptions uh, because we don't have years of historical financials to evaluate. So I think that you know, a lot of the folks we work with underestimate just the conversations. We need to understand the pain point rather than a unit economic, right, from a customer. Because a lot of those, that data doesn't exist where we're investing. Absolutely. Yep. So being a VC now, what's the hardest part of your day, your week? What's something that maybe you didn't think would be as hard, but it is? So I still find it hard to evaluate companies for investment fit. And I would say the hardest part in that was across how many markets you might need knowledge or, you know, at least have the right connections and be able to gain knowledge in a short period of time in the market via industry experts that you might interview or the founders and other players in that. But I still find that hard, right? It's, you know, in the same day, we're talking about a a prop tech company that figures out, you know, how to make uh, data from HVACs more actionable, as well as you're talking to a marketplace for social media influencers and, you know, somebody who helps insurance companies with their modeling actuarial workflows, right? It's, you're thinking about so many different industries so quickly. And I think very often, right, it's, it's, you really have to catch up on the first few slides of somebody saying, well, look, this is our problem in healthcare today. This is a payer provider XYZ problem. You have to stop yourself. You're like, okay, I need, to, I need to start learning how these two work together and how this works and how that works. I would say that's still a hard part, actually, in evaluating companies on, on kind of the business model fit. The other part that I would say is, is still hard is trying to figure out how to be 
the most helpful to the portfolio companies in also kind of running that line between, I mentioned before, overbearing versus actually helpful, or also coming from the operator side in trying to be helpful while you're not actually doing the work, right? So it's interesting when you have a board seat with a company and you know you might form your own ideas of, okay, this is what we need to do, but then it's a, oh, wait, I'm not the one who's jumping in there and doing a pricing split test now, or, you know, I'm not the one jumping in there and sending these emails to potential business partners now. Um, and it's kind of finding that right line, right? In how do I consult or advise or mentor? What sort of ideas, what should I be working on? How am I truly the most helpful with knowing I can do it and I'm just helping other folks do it and, and staying, staying out of the actual tactical parts of the business? I, I find the challenge also being not overstepping the bounds of being helpful or not, but also how do I provide value in a way that I can still keep up with all the portfolio companies that we're working with? How do we do this in a scalable way? Because if I dive in deep with one, it's probably going to sacrifice some of the help and value that I can bring to another one. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I think during my entrepreneur days, I've still grown up with that one-liner that is the best investors are the folks that will always pick up your call but never call you um, <laughs> with, you know, doing that on the, on the institutional side, I think there's general acceptance, right. From entrepreneurs of, okay, we also have to report back to our investors. So we need to check in on a company and, you know, we need to do a call, but right. There's, there's some of the things that are, are kind of back in the, in the back of the mind from the entrepreneur side that you're now kind of trying to ride and trying to balance, which, you know, exactly what you said, I think makes a lot of sense. So if you had $10 million personally that you can invest, you can invest it as an angel, you can invest it as a venture fund, or you could do a combination of, the, of both of those things. How would you think about that decision? Um, that's a good question. So the first thing that pops to mind, you know, having the business school background and, and having worked in banking before is you've got to have a portfolio theory, right? That's the first thing that jumps in my mind is how do I diversify? How do I not place all the risk into, you know, one thing, um, one company, one area, one fund or something like that? But how do I start spreading it out, right? I think that's definitely one consideration also in thinking, right, do I try to do some angel investments myself and um, do some VC investments to, to diversify my portfolio? I think that's a very valid uh, question I would ask myself. The second one is, I think, what do I want to do from a timing perspective? Right. So if I do a VC investment, I'll, I'll have upfront time needs in, in figuring out which VC do I want to invest in? Do I believe in them? Do I believe in their strategy and, and the team? While on the angel investment side, chances are I'll be more involved over a longer time. Right. So I think that's another question. And that could be paired with where could I add more than capital, maybe two, right? So a thought might be that I say, okay, so I want to place my money in. Or maybe I know B2B SaaS well. So how about I make angel investments in B2B SaaS, but then I also invest in a clean tech VC and in a, you know, you call it consumer goods uh, VC and kind of spread my money there a little bit to make sure that, you know, where I can be helpful with more than money, I can actually put time in, but I diversify my money on the other side with folks that might be better in, in other areas than I would be. That's great. I think that's a good way to look at it. Well, all right, Toby, I'm gonna, we're winding down now, so I'm going to ask you a hard-hitting hypothetical here. So you're going to make investments at a co-founder's capital. Now, keep in mind, this affects you and I, right? We're, we're both running this thing, right, along with our partner, David. So 
you got to make it have a good answer to this one. So you're going to make investments out of co-founders capital. You're going to meet with 10 companies you've never met with before. And you have to write a hundred thousand dollar check into one of the 10, but you only get to ask one question to each company. And I'd like to remind our LPs, this is not something we're actually going to do. This is only a hypothetical. We ask more than one question, but Toby, what is that one question you ask the entrepreneur? So if I'm investing on the VC side, my question would be, how big will this business be in five years and why? Okay. Now, if you had to invest your own personal money, so Toby's going to his, his bank account to pull out his money or wire the money directly to the company, 10 companies you've never met before, 100K check is going into one of them. What do you ask him then? What are your most important characteristics or traits that will make you a great entrepreneur? All right. Well, that sounds like an interesting one. I, I, I do want to follow up. And what is a good answer to that question for you to write a personal check? Or um, on the flip side, what do you not want to hear the answer to be? All right. Yeah. So um, so for a bit of background, right? I think on the, so overall and, and even in our VC business, right? We still invest uh, primarily in the entrepreneurs. The business needs to make sense, needs to be doomed, not from the beginning, needs to have a big enough market but it's still mostly an entrepreneur decision. As an angel investor, I would see it even more to almost only the entrepreneur decision because there you can even deal with smaller companies, smaller markets, smaller outcomes. And you might even be more concerned about does the entrepreneur stick it out? Are they gonna run as soon as they you know, get into any problems? Or are they gonna do this for 10 years on, uh, on a ramen noodle salary? Um, and somehow- Which you've done. Come back? Which you've done. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so um, what are the right answer? What is the right answer to what are your characteristics or traits that make you a great entrepreneur? The, the thing I thought about in that question is it allows for a number of different ways, right? So it's a little bit cheeky in, the, in that one question, but you could expect answers like, well, the first characteristic is I've done this a couple of times over. Um, I've done it in this market. I've done it, you know, on this trajectory in raising money. I mean, that's that's a good signal, right? I think other parts in just truly personality traits. I think it's things like grit. That is a huge entrepreneurial um, trait uh, for success. Fluid intelligence, kind of this strong opinions loosely held, right? You have a good perspective on what you think will happen with a business, but you're also willing and, and able to change uh, those perspectives when, when you get the data that it doesn't make sense. Being able to think quick, being able to deal with heuristics, you know, being an 80-20 rule type person that doesn't work on the perfect solution for too long, but rather gets it into the market. I think there's a number of responses that could could get me convinced to invest in an entrepreneur or deter it when it's maybe not one of those or the, the complete opposite of some of those answers. <laughs> That's great. Well, Toby, listen, we're, we're very lucky to have recruited you to the dark side of venture capital from the entrepreneurial world. Uh, it's been great working with you for the last year. Thank you for giving me and the audience your perspective. And we'll get back to the grind right after this podcast and making some good investments in some great entrepreneurs. Right on. I, I can return that favor. It's been been a pleasure working with you and David and uh, Scott and Alex too, and all of our portfolio CEOs over this first year. Looking forward to uh, many more years and decades to come at Co-Founders Capital. And thank you for having me today. 
All right. Thanks, Toby. That was Timmy Blockman's Toby Walter. For more on Toby, find him on LinkedIn or visit cofounderscapital.com. Also, for more upcoming news on this podcast and an upcoming course from Tim, sign up for our newsletter at firstcheckpodcast.com. And if you like this show, please subscribe, rate, and review on any podcast app, including the one you're listening to right now. And find us on Instagram or Twitter at firstcheckpod. This podcast is a production of EarFluence. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on First Check. Hey everyone, this is Jason Gillikin, CEO of EarFluence, which produces this podcast. And if you made it this far, I'm guessing you like this podcast. So I would love for you to check out another podcast that we produce. Welcome to the Hustle and Gather podcast. I'm Courtney. And I'm Dana. We're sisters and serial entrepreneurs. We started our first business with a Craigslist ad, planning a wedding for $125 each. We built a floral business and then shut it down because we kind of hated it. We built our venue on sweat, caffeine, and maxed out credit cards. But we scaled to 16 team members and we can't imagine working for anyone else. We drink. And we swear. And we talk about all the bullshit that goes into running a business. Tune in to Hustle and Gather on any podcast app or visit hustleandgather.com. 